0: Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court, and joining me now from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie?
1: Hey, Jimmy. Uh, hmm. I'm not even sure how to answer that, to be honest. Uh, I think drained is, is one of the first words that comes to mind after, you know, just seeing the insurrection that happened yesterday and... Um, it's a bit of a disheartening day, I think, for uh, for a lot of folks uh, that were watching, especially in the legal community.
0: Absolutely, I'm down here in Florida, actually, for a, a quick getaway and and kind of feel pangs of guilt for not being in D.C. when it's going through this kind of horrible time. After you know, mobs of uh, Trump inflamed rioters stormed the Capitol building as the Congress was you know moving to certify Joe Biden's win in the election. Um, I checked in with the Supreme Court. There was no update there on any um, security information about the justices' safety or anything like that as they don't release that information to the public. But the courthouse obviously has been closed to the public since March. And, you know, most staff are working from home. And I I saw some anecdotal reports that there was no real activity going on around the building. So that's at least one thing to be thankful for after um, the day's events. But I think another thing that's interesting... To point out is that you know a lot of people have laid the blame for the riotous mob yesterday. I think rightly at the feet of these elected officials who baselessly have been, you know, promoting conspiracy theories about the uh, 2020 uh, uh, presidential election, and, and two of those um, are members of the Senate: Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. And I think it's also worth pointing out that you know they were Supreme Court clerks themselves, so. You know, as an institution, the Supreme Court, I I think, maybe has some soul-searching or maybe some of the, uh, you know, law schools that produced um, these elected officials maybe have some soul-searching to do, as well as the members of the Supreme Court bar to just think about how constitutional lawyers themselves could play a role in the kind of sordid affair that we saw yesterday. So that's the comment that I would make there.
1: Yeah, I know I've seen some, you know, Bar associations and, and some individual lawyers, you know, come out and, and, and have some very choice words for what happened yesterday. But we haven't heard from the Supreme Court. We haven't heard from the justices. We haven't heard um, from a number of folks, I think, on, you know, well-known names in, in the appellate bar quite yet. And, and and that might happen. You know, it's early in the day after a very long day that ended in the wee hours with um, lawmakers you know, finally certifying uh, Joe Biden as president.
0: Um, right. And I think let's kind of just take it from there. And that is in the shuffle of of the, of the day's news was kind of lost that Biden actually was certified as the uh, winner of the presidential election, which obviously makes him president and gives him the ability to nominate justices to the Supreme Court. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning that Democrats now appear to be, Um, headed for majority control of the upper chamber, having won the two Senate runoff races in Georgia. So this kind of is very important in terms of how Biden will be able to potentially, uh, you know, make nominations to the Supreme Court during his uh, first year or first, excuse me, term in office. And I um, want to mention that he has pledged to nominate the court's first African-American female justice. So that is something that we're probably going to be following and something we'll be hearing more about as time goes on and more reporting emerges about who he potentially is looking for um, for potential vacancies. Um, Natalie, any guesses on who might be the first Supreme Court vacancy over the next four
1: years? Well, I know all eyes are, are basically on Justice Breyer. He's, I believe, 82 years old, um, you know, and there's some some thinking that he might want to retire underneath a Democratic president, so I, I think he's the the one to bet on um, in the next four years. Uh, you know, the, the the next two potentially age wise in line would be Justice Clarence Thomas and and, and Justice Samuel Alito, probably less likely to, <laughs> to to willingly go underneath Democratic presidents. So we'll see.
0: I think probably after. Justice Ginsburg's replacement by Justice Barrett, you're going to see the Supreme Court justices think an awful lot more about you know who's nominated as their successors, right? Because you know obviously yeah. they are pretty much diametrically opposed, um, the two justices and how they approached the law, and so I think justices concerned about their legacy not being undone by you know uh, a potential you know successor will probably want to. Uh, retire under a president who shares their same ideological leanings. That's why I think we'll probably see Justice Breyer uh, opt to retire sometime in the next four years. We don't know when it will happen, obviously, or even if it will happen. But you know, I think you're going to see a lot of clamoring among. Uh, Democrats and outside progressive groups for that retirement announcement to come. They generally come at the end of the term. So I wouldn't expect it on January 21st, the day after Biden's inaugurated, but potentially sometime in the future. And we'll be following closely, um, you know, some of the potential names that uh, Biden might go for. I think it's uh, I just want to mention that, you know, obviously a lot of the recent uh, Supreme Court nominations have been made from the federal circuit bench, but I think you're going to see a President Biden look a little bit more broadly um, in his search for a potential justice just because of the lack of diversity that exists on the federal circuit bench when it comes to the presence of African-American female justice or judges, excuse me. And so, you know, again, civil rights groups and uh, progressive groups are are telling Biden to look, you know, farther to potentially academia, maybe the federal district court bench, as opposed to the appellate court bench and, and, and state Supreme Court justices as well. And and also, you know, civil rights litigators, as you know, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg's death has now created essentially what is a vacuum of a of civil rights lawyers being represented on the Supreme Court,
1: which I think is is, is pretty notable and, and and huge, especially just given the the time we're in right now. I, I think. Jimmy, it was your st- one of your stories where um, you mentioned that Demand Justice, one of these nonprofits that actually, you know, lob is is lobbying basically for for Sherilyn Ilfil, the the president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, to to be, you know, a contender on 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 his short list. Um, obviously, we have not seen a short list uh, that it seems like it has not we been might be Getting away <laughs> from that practice, <laughs>
0: right? That's that's one president from the trump era that might not stick is the you know continuous updating of the public supreme court shortlist i don't think biden is that into that idea um but one thing that he has released is his selection for attorney general which is a name that you know scotus watchers will be familiar with
1: merrick garland (laughs) merrick garland you have to feel a a little bad that like he gets named, and then the insurrection happens. And so you, you you would, you know, not be really held to account if, if you've kind of missed that news <laughs> right, among right. Uh, everything that happened yesterday. Uh, I almost so yes. missed
0: it, and I was assigned to, you know, cover, write a story about it, so... <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, Merrick Garland, who who obviously is a judge on the D.C. Circuit, which is a lot of people call the second most powerful court in the country just because it's, you know, located in the jurisdiction where there's a lot of um, high-profile cases challenging, for instance, administrative policy. Um, You know, he has been a judge for the last two-plus decades on that court, um, notwithstanding his failed nomination to the Supreme Court. But before that, he was a Department of Justice veteran, a senior official in the DOJ. Um, And so, you know, I talked to people that worked with Garland uh, back in the day who say that, you know, his nomination to become attorney general would be a homecoming of sorts for Garland, who could then, you know, steer the department out of what is pretty much a historic, um, essentially legitimacy crisis where the uh, department has been so hyper-politicized over the last four years and so much institutional trust has been lost that Garland is seen as maybe an, kind of an apolitical figure who could maybe steer um, the uh, institution out of that rut. But we shall see. Um, but it's not just Merrick Garland who's going to try to move the DOJ past the Trump era. We're also seeing other government institutions kind of turning the page a little bit on the past four years um, including the Supreme Court, which seems to be ready to move on from a lot of the Trump litigation that's dominated its docket over the last four
1: years. I don't think I blame them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 let's, you know, recap a, a, a little bit, right? They've had everything from the travel ban to election cases, nonstop emergency requests, essentially, right? And I know, and now all this election litigation that's still, I think pending on the docket, there's like a couple. Of
0: there are still several cases, several petitions so? that pending that the Supreme Court yeah. has yet to take any action on. And, it, and and you're right. It just seems pretty obvious that the justices are are waiting for the inevitable inauguration of Joe Biden to essentially turn these cases away quietly. But I, I would just say it, it's notable that it's not just these election cases that the Supreme Court has been sitting on. I mean, there are other petitions as well that uh, President Trump has brought in recent months that the court has kind of not wanted to touch with his 10-foot pole. I mean, I'm thinking in particular about the emoluments appeal that Trump brought, um, you know, challenging the revival of the case brought against him from, you know, his business dealings brought um, by, you know, outside watchdog groups, you know, saying he's violating the U.S. Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. Um, Another one has to do with his ability to block users on Twitter, which, poses some pretty fascinating questions of First Amendment law. Um, I think there's another one out there swirling around involving the uh, President Trump's essentially his request to be shielded once again from the subpoenas from uh, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. That's still pending on the Supreme Court's document. And these cases have been piling up, you know, for months now that the justices don't really seem to want to have anything to do with.
1: Now, I know there's a conference tomorrow. Uh, Possibly we might see some of these chucked officially.
0: I was just going to say that's probably just my luck is that, you know, tomorrow is when they'll decide to take up all these on an emergency basis. (laughs) No, I don't (laughs) think that's going to happen. The court does not seem to be really interested in them, in adding them to what's already a pretty, you know, action-packed docket. And in fact, there are Trump cases that are still that the court has agreed to take up in recent months that could essentially be mute, moot. I was about to say mute because of you know how many <laughs> how many times I've said that using Zoom over the past few months. No, they could be moot soon because you know these Trump policies that uh, you know a lot of plaintiffs have been challenging in court could be reversed under a president Biden.
1: Well, just last month there was uh, the canceled arguments uh, over, you know, the DOJ. Has right. to, whether Over whether the DOJ has to turn over uh, secret grand jury materials and that one's tied to the, you know, ever ongoing or ever with us Robert Mueller investigation, um, you know, and, and that was moved forward under the presumption that, you know, things will change under a Biden administration, whether it's, you know, uh, perhaps the DOJ will not have a problem handing over those materials you know, in, right. under the new administration or whether there just is not going to be that concern anymore uh, once January 20th comes around.
0: Yeah, so the, so the court, as you said, they took that case off the docket and uh, the ones that I was mentioning earlier, you know, they involve um, the Trump administration. Well, that one's
1: still on the docket. It's still officially <coughs> a live case. Yeah. Right. But the arguments have been pushed back, assuming it might be able to get taken off the docket
0: right it's basically been put on pause you're right they they cancel the oral arguments the case is still actually technically pending they haven't dismissed it yet but you know things could change um after january 20th um yeah so in the february session which also includes i think the first week of march as well Uh, The court is set to hear the Trump administration's appeals to reinstate its remain in Mexico policy, which is a policy that has affected, I think, more than 60,000 migrants, um, you know, sending them back to Mexico while they await their immigration proceedings. And that's a policy that uh, uh, President-elect Biden has pledged to rescind. So whether he'll be able to do that in time to essentially moot this case um, it remains to be seen, and the same goes for um, another case that's going to be heard during the February session, and that involves the Trump administration's efforts to defer, divert congressionally appropriated funds to continue, you know, building its uh, Trump's border wall, which is another, um, you know, policy that Biden plans to reverse. I think he's pledged that he's not going to build another foot of wall. So we'll see what happens with those cases, but you know, as we say. Uh, the Supreme Court certainly seems to be entering a new phase here um, a- ahead of the Biden administration coming into office in just a few weeks. Um, and I wanted to kind of talk with you, Natalie, about what that might look like, um, what the Supreme Court's relationship with a Biden administration is going to look like and what we might see from this very you know, conservative majority that we have on the court.
1: Well, it'll be interesting, right, because while... He will have control of the Senate by a very slim majority. A uh, President Biden's not going to be able, or at least the thought is, that he's not going to be able to really push very progressive reform agendas in terms of legislation through that slim majority because of the filibuster, uh, which would require, you know, 60 votes and would require about 10 Republican senators to sign on to legislation. Right. So, you know, that alone, I think, will make a lot of the legislation and policies that come out of the administration, you know, more bipartisan and perhaps a little less prone to the, you know, attacks from the other side that maybe we've seen with under that that we've seen under a President Trump and under a Republican controlled Senate
0: Right. So the idea is that if if Biden can't reach that 60 vote filibuster threshold that we know is probably going to continue because, you know, there are some Democrats that don't want to get rid of it, then he's going to have to rely on executive actions to achieve some of these transformative policies that he's been talking about. And, you know, one thing that I've learned speaking to, you know, constitutional law experts about the subject is that that could make his policies very vulnerable to court challenges, not unlike we saw during the Obama administration when you know Obama's executive actions on immigrations were tied up in the court's system in Texas, and potentially you could see a mirror side of what we saw over the last four years with some of Trump's policies, right? Where you know Democratic attorneys general would you know run to court and essentially get a nationwide injunction against some of Trump's Policies and and that experts say could potentially happen once again um, under a Biden administration, especially if he tries to use you know, for instance, pre-existing statutes on the environment, like the Clean Air Act, to pass you know, or excuse me, to implement kind of new age uh, policies confronting the threat of climate change. For instance, where you know courts might be very skeptical about using these. You know, old pre existing statutes to tackle public policy issues that weren't really uh, considered at the time of the law's passage. And I think that's especially the case with the Supreme Court that we now see, where you have, you know, six Republican appointed justices, three Democratic appointed justices, and a common trait among Trump appointed justices and even judges on the lower courts is kind of a skepticism of executive power of the ability of the president and the uh, agencies to kind of unilaterally uh, promulgate some of these policies without going through Congress. I think Justice Gorsuch is kind of derisively called it, referred to it as, you know, lawmaking made easy by executive fiat. And I think you'll probably see uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court and possibly even including Chief Justice John Roberts really kind of pump the brakes on some of the more ambitious plans that Biden has if he can't get that, you know, legislative compromise um, that maybe the courts would be more sympathetic to.
1: Well, Fawn, it'll be interesting to see some more executive action litigation uh, in the coming terms, as we've been seeing for, you know, all these these recent years. Uh Something to look forward to, I guess. <laughs> also to look forward to is oral arguments next week. Uh, we'll be back with a recap of those. Uh, but we really just, you know, want to kind of set the stage for what might be coming down the pike this this year uh, under President Biden.
0: It's been fun kind of chatting with you, Natalie, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss um, as the court kind of handles some pretty interesting legal issues Next week in a number of cases that we didn't really have time for today, um, but they involve, you know, uh, bond hearings for migrants and First Amendment law and the ability of the Federal Trade Commission to seek something called monetary relief to pursue people for money. And and those are pretty big deals. We didn't have, like I said, enough time for for them today, but we're going to have a lot to unpack next week.
1: I'm excited. Thanks, Jimmy.
0: Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.
1: We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and contributing reporters this week, Andrew Craigie. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.